Reed, question. When did you first learn about the concept of raw denim? Like, what, what was that experience for you like when you first discovered that there was such a thing as raw denim? I feel like it was probably at the APC store in Soho. Maybe like, like the Bond Street one. It was, an, it was an alien experience. It was a thing that like seeing denim as raw was unnatural. It was like walking into a crate and barrel and someone being like, hey, here's a spiked couch. Just like here's here's an uncomfortable thing that you will you will have to take time to wear down to enjoy. Mm-hmm. I definitely didn't understand the concept. No, not even not even close. I think at the time I was wearing some like super washed like mall brand jeans. Yeah, that was that was my same experience too. That I, I my first encounter with raw denim was unintentional. That I bought a pair of LVC 501s uh, at a Buffalo Exchange for like 20 bucks. And I was like, why are these getting like ink on everything? I don't understand this because this was like in 2006, 2007, before it was uh, available in the wider consciousness. And I ended up reselling them because I did not like them. And I didn't like that they were uh, stiff and uncomfortable. And I didn't get it. It, it it took me a while before I came back to uh, to the source and yeah, I never left. Where but, did you resell jeans in 2007? Oh, I, I went to back to Buffalo Exchange. Oh, okay. And that was the that original was internet. The, yeah, the original uh, Grailed IRL. But did you get like three dollars yeah, for them. <laughs> oh yeah, in store credit, no less. Yeah, I feel like the entire concept of denim for anyone younger than maybe age 50 now is like soft, stonewashed, like pre-distressed stuff. And like the the concept of raw denim, like straight off the loom is very unusual. Yeah, I think we take it for granted at uh, at Heddles and just sort of like in the menswear community at large, mm-hmm. especially because APC was so formative in like the hashtag menswear like origin story, I guess. And that was one of their signature products. It's like kind of weird to think about what would have happened if, if they just like weren't doing raw denim. I mean, I know that was part of their appeal. So it's like chicken and egg situation, but like, but yeah, because even to this day, there's like, I remember people used to walk. I mean, not to this day, I guess it would have been, you know, a few years ago, but people would walk into union made and be like, what does it say raw? And you'd be like, ah, it's, you know, it's just like, it hasn't been washed down for you. They're like, can I wash it? Mm-hmm. Like, sure. Like eventually it'll get washed, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a funny thing in the mind of the consumer that like, we've gone complete 180 from the way that denim was for most of its natural life until now. It's our, our only interaction with it is, totally bleached out and sandblasted and uh, pre-digested. But, yeah. Uh, it's like the mama bird version of, uh, of denim. Yeah. But uh, we're going to learn how it got that way today. Welcome back to Heddle's Blowout. My name's David. I'm Reed. And we are barreling towards the exciting conclusion of our History of Denim series. 
We started a few months ago discussing pirates and Renaissance-era textile production records, and here we are, about to make our uh, semi-final stand on stonewashed jeans. With pirates again. You know, when I was in school studying history, there was this talk of the, quote, 50-year rule, where you can't really understand what a historical period is until 50 years later, when enough had happened that you could put the story together uh, forensically. But today, we are crossing over that 50-year threshold. That uh, We're going to talk about things that involve people that are still alive and will maybe get upset and call bullshit on some of the things that we're saying. So. Are you ready, Reed, to hold hands, Thelma and Louise style, as we drive into this canyon of questionable scholarship? Am I Thelma or Louise? Thelma. I'm Thelma? Yeah. That tracks. You're, that's Susan Sarandon. I feel like this works. So, yeah, I am ready as Thelma. Okay, you're ready. Thelma, particularly, yeah. Legendary designer Yves Saint Laurent is often quoted as saying, I wish I had invented blue jeans. They have expression, modesty, sex appeal, simplicity. All I hope for in my clothes. Now, I can't find a date attribution for that quote because it's like all over the internet and all these dumb quote sites that I'm sure get a lot of traffic from uh, SEO hacking. But I'm guessing it was sometime in the late 1970s or early 80s. Goodreads doesn't have adequate citation. No, they have no citation. There's no citation for any of this stuff. They could just be. I, I assume that's right because that like puts him what two uh, two decades into his career and that that's enough time to have wanted to do other things mm -hmm. and when jeans were coming up in the, in the fashion community yeah and if he was like three years in it would be like you're not gonna have regret at that point no it was like in the late 70s that was the first time that the fashion community began to seriously contemplate what it could do with denim and jeans and if you remember our last episodes left off with the convergence of denim in the civil rights movement the counterculture and disaffected beat poets, bikers, teens, and even Bing Crosby. And so by the early 1970s, we had reached this denim singularity where they had become ubiquitous and acceptable enough in mainstream society, and you weren't really making that much of a statement by wearing them. Now that they were ubiquitous enough, we had to do what America does best. Market segmentation. It's kind of like what's happening with social media now. Pretty much. You got to, you got to, uh, luxuriate it. You got to have your high market and your low market. You got to have the, the different options that speak to everybody, you know, so you can stand in front of an aisle of shampoo and uh, have a panic attack. Which gene company was making, was Gab? Which gene company was Gab? In the, in oh. the situation, Telegram. We're, we're going to get there. That's the, that's the one that has the pirates on it. Yes. Yeah, up until this point, uh, denim had been almost like a commodity. The, the people bought it for its utility. The design was a product of function and not artistic vision or stylistic expression. It was like, um, I don't know, I feel like things have been so heavily luxurized in segments that, that you can't really think of an example of something that's still a pure commodity. It's like light bulbs or motor oil, both of those things you can buy premium versions of nowadays, which is a little bit ridiculous. It's better light. Mm -hmm. it's, it's clear light. You know, you can do the, the swirly one. You can do the one that has the LED in it. There's like smart light bulbs that you can change the color with on your phone. It, it's it's like a ball mason jar, I feel like, is like one of the last things that hasn't been luxurized. It's just like, that's it's a, a good one. It's just like a ball mason jar, Bic that's lighter. The, the Rock of Gibraltar, the, the ball mason jar. Yeah, but it's like basically things that, that you use in like the greater smoking weed 
universe, <laughs> like Bic lighters. It's just like you can buy a Zippo, but that's a hassle. Like um, a Bic is basically peak luxury, unless you're a Clipper fan. They're the same price. They're just round or like they're cylindrical instead of Hey Arnold head shape. Uh huh. Oblong. But yeah, like there's not, you know, there's not many, many things these days that haven't been luxury. Mm-hmm. I, I have like a uh, Dyson fan that's incredible. Mm-hmm. That's a fan. It just moves air. It moves air super well, though. I got a Dyson stick vacuum recently. It is also incredible. They do such good work. Yeah, they do good work. But uh, Sponsor the pod, Dyson. Please, please. We like to move air around. Big fan of air moving. The denim, though, is a commodity that was all about to change. Because uh, canonically, the first person who is credited with making designer jeans is Elio Fiorucci. Uh, any guesses where he's from? Ireland. Close. Also Italy. starts with an I. Italy. Yeah. Oh, Fiorucci was a Milan-based designer that came up with the idea for a super skinny pair of jeans while he was partying in Ibiza, and he saw women there go swimming in their jeans, and he liked how they cling to their legs when they came back to the beach uh, out of the water. A real uh, stand-up uh, appreciator of the, the female form, Mr. Fiorucci. Origin stories are rough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like anything, you go back more than... I don't know, uh, a few weeks, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's still terrible. Yeah, it's like, how did we get this? Oh, mm. uh, He called his gene the Buffalo 70, and it came out in the early 70s. Like, the first ads were in 1973. And it was skinny, dark, high-waisted, and it rode up very, very high in the back. Uh, it had his own leather patch that featured two painted cherubic angels that were sort of like from this Renaissance motif. And you can see in this ad featuring model Donna Jordan how they fit. We'll we'll put that one in the uh, show notes. They fit well. They uh, uh, they they look a little bit painful. How how high they ride up. They really um, sh- don't leave much to the imagination. No, the seams look invasive. Regardless, the jean was a huge hit among the New York club scene of the seventies. That the Studio Fifty Four crowd that was doing coke and disco all night just loved these things, and they had. Uh, Celebrity appreciation from everyone from Jackie Kennedy, Diana Ross, Bianca Jagger, Liz Taylor, Cher, uh, Andy Warhol, and Nico, and all the Factory Girls, they were all Fiorucci fans. But uh, Fiorucci can also be credited with causing body issues for an entire generation of women because he refused to make his clothes in a size larger than 10 and only shot extremely thin people for his collections. Didn't he come back, or like someone buy the the trademark on that recently. I feel like I've seen Fiorucci stuff. Yeah, they're up. making them again. He died a few years ago. Uh, but yeah, the the brand is back making jeans that don't really look like the original ones at all. But yeah, they have yeah, like graphic tees that are super subtle with like all over, you know, just like bleeding heart prints and stuff. Yeah, it's sort of like the, um, I don't know, earnest Italian version of Affliction is what the, <laughs> the, the reboot looks like. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the original one was uh, it, it had a really big impact on the rest of designer denim. It was the first like quote unquote premium jean offering, uh, and the concept was copied by everyone from Gloria Vanderbilt to Calvin Klein. You know, when once they it is sort of the way that the uh, fashion denim works. You have like one uh, maker that's very very high up in the market make an innovation. 
And then everyone else sort of copies it and diffuses it all the way down through all the other segments of the market. Um, that, you know, Fiorucci would have been at the top with all these celebrities wearing it and the people that couldn't afford it would buy the next rung down like Calvin Klein or Gloria Vanderbilt. And then it would filter down continuously after that. But like as it made the way down its this like Plinko board of uh, distribution amongst all these different brands, like the popularity just grew and grew. And Calvin Klein was one of the bigger ones in bringing out like premium denim as a thing and establishing it in the American psyche that uh, it probably had the most iconic moment in defining this stuff. But they had a nationwide jeans like TV ad featuring a young Brooke Shields in 1980, which uh, we can play here for you. There's not a lot of sound to it, but uh, it is worth looking at again for the uh, thoughts of seeing that, you know, Times have changed significantly. You want to know what comes between me and my Calvins? Nothing. Calvin Klein jeans. She wasn't quite 18 in this ad yet, was she? How old do you think she is here, Reed? It's a it's a terrifying time to like view any Brooke Shields content that era. Cause she I feel is. like I have a shirt with her smoking weed with HR from Bad Brains on it. Uh I've no idea. Like it's like when she's like a kid actor. Um just like sitting on a couch. But I know she was yeah, she was like very much on the scene in like a Drew Barrymore capacity at a young age. Mm-hmm. But uh I know folks were were uh, sexualizing her in absurdly inappropriate ways at at that point as well. And I do not know her birth year. So like 1980, I'm looking at this being like, this is probably dangerous. She was 15. What are we were okay with this as a society, huh? We were like, this is a good ad. Eh, Not entirely. It was banned in a lot of markets. Do you think people want awards for it? Mm, by awards like lots of money by selling a lot of jeans I'm yeah. like ad week do you think like ad, ad week was like yo this one is this is the was it banned by like like the evangelical right or was it banned by people who were just like this isn't great um i don't know exactly i don't know if there was that much distinction back then but it was more just like uh this is very sexualizing especially the thing of like the only thing that comes between me and my calvins is nothing um, or what comes between me and my Calvin's is nothing, implying, you know, a lot, which was how Calvin Klein made his name is by doing a lot of these controversial, like innuendo type ads, uh, more so than the clothes, honestly. When I was 15, I needed a permission slip to go places. Like, I'm just so it's, it is insane. That was 1980. Uh, people think, you know, things have changed now and that that we're a a less chaste society you know uh i'd like to think that that probably wouldn't fly today but i don't know it was also like a weird run of movies right you have like taxi driver you have blue lagoon speaking of brook shields you know Mm -hmm. like where it's just like i don't know man these kids are young but uh the ad worked i suppose for how um weird and uncomfortable it is to to view it now but uh, from there, the designer jeans came very fast and thick that you have all these brands that um, some of which more recognizable than others. You got Jordache, Guess, 
Sasson, Sergio Valente, Donna Karen, and uh, my personal favorite, the pirate ones, is Tail Lord, spelled T-A-L-E space L-O-R-D, which is, of course, a pun on tailored. It sounds like someone who just writes way too long Instagram comments. Tail Lord? Yeah, they're, just, they're not an edge lord. They're like a tail lord. They're a tail lord. So they had these super intricate designs embroidered on the back of the pockets of uh, cowboys and fishermen and karate guys fighting each other. And this is the pirate one. I found one where there's a pirate looking through a spyglass embroidered on one pocket. And then there's a ship that he's staring at onto the other pocket. It's, I, I would love to have a pair of jeans like this. Oh, wow. There's, it's, it's telling a story across the ass. Yeah, you know, the Juicy has nothing on this. There's ones of like eagles like flying off from a tree or like cars racing across different pockets. There's drama in these. They're they're tail lords. Like, you know, if you saw someone just like coming around a corner, it's like you knew what was going on with one thing, but you'd have to you'd have to see the whole butt. Designer jeans did a lot more than just change the stitching and the ads. They would also alter the way that we thought about denim fabric forever which we will get into in just a second after this quick break. Attention blowout listeners. Stop by the Heddle shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Heddle's price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. Now, Reed, it's not a huge secret that you're not a huge fan of breaking in denim. No, I'm not a fan. That is on the record multiple times. I'm sure people are just like secretly hate me for it or publicly hate me for it. Well, you know, I don't think so. Maybe in the denim community, but you have a lot in common with most of the denim wearing world, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode. I'm the voice of the common man, you know? Mm. There's a lot of the new people that were now interested in buying jeans, uh, especially those with the disposable income to purchase premium denim offerings, didn't have the time or the inclination to go through with all of the trouble of softening up their pants. So we invented machines to do it for them. And many different people have claimed to have invented stonewashing denim. That we have uh, Donald Freeland, an employee of the Great Western Garment Company in the 1950s. We have inventor Claude Blanquiet, which that is his real name, Claude Blanquiet, from the American Garment Finishers in the 1970s. And even Edwin Denim from Japan that uh, we all know and love in the denim community these days claimed that they first did it in the 80s. Considering the wide gap in claims, like it feels like this should be easy to prove, but I will say I am voting for Claude Blanquiet. Mm-hmm, me too. He has the best name. He should get the prize. 1,000%. Like this, it's not even, it's not even a question, but it's just like, I don't know if one guy's like, yeah, I was doing it in the fifties and another guy's like, I, would, I started it in the seventies. I feel like someone could just be like, well, did it exist in the sixties? But it might have been spontaneous generation because it was a thing that like Donald Freeland claims to have invented it but it wasn't necessarily widely used. So Claude Blanquiet could have come up with the idea and then done it independently of Donald Freeland. But I, I think Edwin's full of shit. There, there's no way that you could have come up with it in the 80s uh, after someone named Claude Blanquiet did it. Yeah, it's like me coming up with a rubber sole shoe being like, I got it, it's called a sneaker. Mm-hmm. Whoa, you can take that one to the bank. 
You know, I feel like it's a good idea. I'm going to run with it. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. I did. I did it. The stone washing process, regardless of its provenance, though, uh, is pretty much what it sounds like. That uh, you put the jeans in a big rotating drum with a bunch of pumice stones, and they roll around, beating up and fading and softening the denim. Kind of the antithesis of everything that we try to stand for at Heddles, that you got extra steps there that hurt the environment and also remove the utility from the finished garment, but uh, all on the surface of imparting an inauthentic look to the pants. I feel like this is a personal attack. To be, I guess, totally honest, I don't really wear stonewash jeans either. Either Also, do you think they tried other stones besides pumice and were like, yeah, these aren't going to work, like this quartz? Yeah, I think they used the pumice because it was so light but still abrasive, or else it would have really, really damaged probably the machines as well as the pants too much. They would have just torn them to shreds. In the... Uh... In the denim movie, I want that montage where they're just ruining washing machines and jeans. Trying all different. <laughs> we need it lighter. We've tried 30 different kinds of stones. I think we've got to give up. <laughs> like, oh, we've between, only got one left. Between sandstone, limestone, and pumice, if none of these work, mm-hmm. we're out of luck. But pumice did work, and it was uh, very, very popular. That it was so much, in fact, that it led to extensive mining of pumice deposits in the southwestern United States which then had a subsequent backlash from environmentalists in the 1980s. that They were like strip mining pumice out of New Mexico, Arizona, and uh, Eastern California, the point that it was ruining environments to get the pumice to then ruin the genes. I'm not going to lie, I thought pumice came from volcanoes. Uh, I believe it does, because like the original source of that I saw was in like Italy and Greece and like other areas around the Mediterranean. And there were uh, prehistoric volcanoes in the southwestern U.S. where they could mine pumice out of. I guess that makes sense. Yosemite is like a volcano that's the size of the entire western United States underground. So, mm-hmm. And you can, you can fuck up your genes with it. Yose- Yosemite fucked up. Mm-hmm. Stamp of approval. In addition to stonewashing, there was also the extreme of acid wash denim. And that was bleached to the point of resembling either the nearly white sun and salt faded jeans of California surfers, where, uh, you know, it, it looked like there was no indigo left, just like the ghost of an indigo, sort of like, you know, the ghost of a flavor in a LaCroix or something like that. Or, you know, they took bleach and they just threw it on willy nilly, like the punks were doing to give it a modeled, almost camo like uh, appearance on their jeans. And that was a thing that was you know, big in the hardcore music community in the 80s. And you know, this is basically what a lot of high fashion is. It takes these trends and looks that germinate organically within subcultures like surfers or punk music, and it packages them in a way that uh, consumers can participate in the look, but not necessarily the culture to get there. They just you know, give them their money and they can look like that. I like the idea of changing acid wash to like LaCroix denim. <laughs> it's in the nomenclature. What if they did that with LaCroix, though, that they had, you know, like... Uh, it was basically just grapefruit juice, and then they took out everything but just the hint of grapefruit juice, and they threw out all of the good grapefruit that they took out of it. It's the and essence the- of them, you know? Mm-hmm. The essence of great. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it would be great for the environment if... The thing, I guess the difference is, is that you can still, like, theoretically use the grapefruit pulp. It's hard to use just, like, the wastewater. Yeah, I mean, if they haven't come up with something to do with it in about 40 years, I don't know if they will, but... Again, just another good reason to wear raw denim. Don't wear washed denim. 
But uh, one final innovation that we get from this era of fashion denim is stretch. That uh, Fiorucci's skin-tight Buffalo 70s were uh, supposedly 100% cotton, to, but to achieve the look with a little less of the pain, designers used elastane in the weave to give the denim a little bit of give. Uh, there's also claims that the first stretch denim was done by British designer Peter Golding in 1978 and his London store Ace, which is frequented by people like uh, David Bowie and Mick Jagger, which I actually met him a few years ago, and he's, he's a nice guy. Do you lay claim to it? Oh, yeah. That was the entire point of the conversation. Is you think he's trying to solidify his, uh, his le- uh, legacy as being the inventor of stretch denim, and... Uh, he also has the moniker of being the Eric Clapton of denim, which I find very funny. In what way? Because I feel like that could be a loaded term in 2021. Yeah, I, I guess like when I met him and that was like in 2013 or 2014, um, that was when it was less well known that uh, Eric Clapton was a uh, anti-lockdown racist. Yeah, raging but, nativist. Yeah, but... Um, I don't know if he still is holding on to that that claim. It was when I met him, he was like, I'm like the Eric Clapton of jeans. I made the, the first stretch jean. I had this boutique and all these cool people were hanging out in it. But, um, you know, he didn't do anything sexist to me, but uh, I'm not the best person to ask about that. Is there any challengers to his claim? Uh, Fiorucci, like, also did some stretch denim, but it's uncertain whether he did it before 1978 or not. See, this is when we're getting into that like 50-year rule because like some of these people like might listen to this episode and we're probably going to get some angry emails. But, you know, yeah. help us set the record straight. Yeah, bring them, people. We're, you know, this isn't set in stone. This was supposed to be like five parts and we're on part 32, so. Now we have denim that's been beaten with rocks, burned with acid, and injected with plastic in the name of fashion. But it is a Frankenstein of its former self that, in uh, the Heddle's opinion, has lost its way. But next time, we have an old friend to come back and show us the error in our ways and set us on the righteous path. Be sure to join us next week in what's probably going to be the final episode in our History of Denim series, The Genes of the Rising Sun. Talk in Japan. Thank you again for listening to our episode. Little plug here for our upcoming program of Heddles Plus. Reed, have you heard about Heddles Plus? No, I've not. What is that? I mean, I told you about it last week. Yeah, but I've, I've been prompted to say no. What is that? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. It is our soon-to-launch subscription service that will include everything Heddles, plus so much more, including bi-monthly product giveaways, additional long-form articles and podcast episodes, exclusive discounts at nearly a dozen brands and stores, a private forum where you can ask questions and message us pictures of your jeans. Launching this February... And listeners uh, here can get a free trial with the code BLOWOUTPLUS. Have more on all that soon. But, uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, read what is our email. Blowout at heddles.com. And my name is David. I'm Reed. And we will catch you next time. Bye-bye.